different, different for me anyway. So rather than me giving you a 40-minute monologue, as I usually do, I thought I'd get this microphone. We'll pass it around, and I want to hear some of your contributions and ideas and questions as we go through this passage together. Because if you're anything like me, you'll look at this passage, you'll think this is quite a detailed argument and quite difficult at first glance to really get to grips with. But I think the truth here is so wonderful that we really ought to understand this as much as we can, and we can help each other to do that with the wisdom that God has given us collectively. So, Christopher, can I ask you to volunteer, or can I volunteer you to pass the microphone around to people? Would that be okay? So I'll leave it down here at the front. So, 1 Corinthians 15, I hope you found the sermon this morning useful. Tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of glorification, as it's called. What is the the doctrine of glorification? The doctrine of glorification is this idea that when Christian people die, there will be a resurrection of the body. So this is a hope that Christians have always had. It's a hope that is based on the promises of the Lord Jesus. It's a hope that is based on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Paul talks about it in this passage. Why is this important to us? Well, I mentioned this earlier. I don't want to repeat myself, but as I said earlier, death is all around us. And death is something that people fear. And death is something that people try to avoid and try to push back and try not to think about. But death is a reality for each one of us. And therefore, this, this idea that the body will be resurrected one day, the bodies of believers, to be in the kingdom of God with the Lord is a very encouraging and comforting doctrine. As I was preparing this, I remember a poem which I think I learned at school. I think it's Dylan Thomas. Um, it goes like this. It's about death, and he says this. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The poet was talking about his father who was on his deathbed and seemed to be slipping away, as I understand it, towards a passive um, just dying without really kind of trying to oppose it or resist it. And he said, he said you know, listen, Father, you need, you need to really be fighting against this. This is a terrible tragedy that's coming upon you to die. Fight against it with all your might because this is something that is just so bleak and hopeless. I hope, hope I understand it correctly. That's the idea. Rage against the dying of the light. Death is it's just the end. Death is miserable. Death is just a parting. You know, you're gone forever. So many people would see death like this. It's like an enemy to be resisted at all costs. But as I said earlier, death always wins, doesn't it, in the end? Or does it? What would Paul say about this? Verse 35, Paul Paul preempts two questions that Christian people might ask about the resurrection of the body. What are these two questions? What's the first question? Someone give it to me, please. Before that. How are the dead raised? That's the first question. So I think this is, this is a kind of incredulous question. I think the people that are likely to be asking this question are likely to be quite sceptical. And they'll, they'll be saying, asking this question. They'll be saying, well, how on earth can the dead be raised? 
how can this be possible? How can even God, how can God raise somebody who's dead to new life? As I mentioned earlier, the, the Greeks really struggled with this idea of a resurrection of the body. For them, it was the most ludicrous idea that you could come up with. And it's very possible that the Corinthian Christians were influenced by this Greek thinking. How can the dead be raised? You know, we, we have some kind of cultural understanding of this, don't we? We come from a Christianized culture. We understand the idea of the dead being raised. But imagine if you came from a culture where this was a completely alien concept. And this is the kind of context these people find themselves in. How can the dead be raised? And then there's the second question. What was it, Christopher? What kind of body will we have? So I think that perhaps this is more of, more of an honest question, not such an incredulous question, but somebody's honestly asked, well, okay, well, I believe, I believe the dead will be raised. But how will they be raised? What will it look like? What kind of body will they have? Will it be the same as the body we have now? Will it be a new body? Or will it be a new body but rooted in the old body? Or some kind of connection with the old body? So I think that's quite a reasonable question, don't you? I think that's a... We all, we all like to know the answer to that question, wouldn't we? So Paul kind of, he tries to answer these questions tonight in these verses. Verse 36. How does Paul respond to these questions? What does he say? How foolish. Literally, fools. He exclaims, fools, foolish people. Well, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? me, it seems like quite a good question. But then Paul goes into his argument, doesn't he? And he starts to illustrate this concept. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Have you noticed that Paul, he draws upon the natural world, examples from the world of nature, to illustrate this idea of dying and being raised again. So Paul takes the idea of a seed, a seed that is sown in the ground. Now, some of you know I, I like planting trees. I, I love trees. I've got a whole like mini plantation at home full of trees. So every autumn I go to the woods, I pick up acorns, and I pick up conkers and chestnuts, and I plant them in pots. And lo and behold, in the spring, they all come up. Most of them anyway. So you've got all these, all these trees shooting up in my garden in pots. One day I'll plant them somewhere. But if you, if you look at these pots, you see the, the remains of the acorn or the conker, the horse chestnut that was left there in the autumn, planted in the soil. You can see it's all split open. It's rotten. But from the middle of it, from the heart of it, is this green shoot rising up into this kind of glorious tree, mini tree. Martin, you gave me a horse chestnut from your garden. It's really... Real showpiece. It's lovely, full of lush green leaves, and maybe my kids will pick conkers from that tree, from under that tree one day in 30 years and play conkers, if kids still do that in 30 years. <laughs> but what was it? What was it that made that seed? What was it that made that tree grow? What had to happen for that to take place? Death. Yeah. That seed, that acorn, whatever it was, had to go into the soil, it had to die, it had to decompose in order for life to come. If I put that acorn on the shelf or in, in a shoebox somewhere or you know, in, a, in a cup, 
it wouldn't have grown, it wouldn't have sprouted, it wouldn't have germinated, there would be no new life. Something had to die first. So Paul uses this, this is very common picture from nature. He says, actually, you think this is, a, this is a crazy idea that the dead should come again, that the dead should be raised to life, but actually it happens all the time on a small scale in the world around us. If only you have eyes to see it. These people, excuse me, Daniel's getting excited because he's going on holiday tomorrow. So, Those people lived in, a, in a, an agricultural society. If you plant wheat every autumn and you expect a harvest, what has to happen in order for there to be a harvest? Surely the seeds have to go into the ground, they die, and then you get a crop in the spring, well, in, in the autumn, but it starts sprouting in the spring and it grows through the summer and in the autumn the harvest comes. This happens in the natural world all around us, this idea that things die and something else sprouts to life from the husk, husk the, from the remains of that seed. You might think that, that that acorn that I sowed in the ground, that conker, that was the end of the acorn or the end of the conker. But it wasn't the end of it, was it? Actually, it was planted in the ground, it died, but something far better arose out of it. Now, look at verse 37. Someone might need the microphone for this, because I want to hear what you have to say. When you sow, you you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body, as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Can anybody help us to understand what Paul means by this verse? Particularly verse 38. God gives it, gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Why does Paul mention this? Don't be shy. I know you've got, we've got some great theologians amongst us. So. Any ideas, Steve? Oh, I, think, I thought you might have something, Steve. Thanks. Well. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Yeah. I guess what he's, I've always thought what he's saying is that the, the, the body that's to come that is, is determined by what's in the, um, the seed that's planted. Hmm. I mean, nowadays we have some idea even how it works, but the, um, you know, if you plant... A, a conquer you get a, you get a horse chestnut or a chestnut you don't Correct. get an oak tree um, so he's saying that I think there is some connection between the the uh, earthly body and and the spiritual body that he's going to go on to talk about yeah I think that's very important so anyway Annie wants to say something so this is children's Bible, by the way, but it's like basically the same, but a little bit per- kind of changed to make it easier. And it explains it in 39 and 40. All things made of flesh are not the same kind of flesh. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another kind. Birds have another, and fish have another. Also, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the beauty of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The beauty of the earthly bodies is another kind. Thank you. So how does that explain it? So basically he says it's all... um, um, All things made of flesh. 
but this is different kind of thing, you know? So everything is part of God's design. And interesting, he even calls like human body, earthly body still beautiful, you know? So kind of, uh, uh, he planned, God planned everything and it's part of his plan, you know? So. Thank you. Very profound. So any, anybody else want to add anything to that? I think there's something here about, about God determining, verse 38. God gives it a body as he is determined. To each kind of seed, he gives its own body. So the idea here, is, as Steve said, there are different kinds of seeds, and different kinds of seeds grow into different kinds of trees. And God determines each one, the kind of body that they will have. So if you look at different trees, different trees are very, very different. They're almost as different as different kinds of people. You know, an oak tree is not like an apple tree. An apple tree is not like a palm tree. It's not like a Scots pine. It's not like a beech tree. They're all very different. God determines each one, but they're all similar in a certain way. And then, as Anya mentioned, he, he talks about, uses different examples. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. So he uses the natural world to illustrate this principle that there are different kinds of bodies, as God has determined. They are different from each other. So why should it be so strange that there should be two, in, in a sense, a human body, a, a natural body, and a spiritual body, the body that's to come? Look at verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. I do wonder, when you think about the, the planets, think about the, the constellations, the stars, you think about it, they're, they're suited to their environment, aren't they, as it were? They're, they're suited to heavenly places, to, to cosmic places. You know, the earth is perfectly suited to its environment. God has placed the earth in this ideal place to sustain life. They say, don't we, we were one meter away, further away from the sun, we'd all freeze to death, and one meter closer, we'd all burn up. God has made the earth in a certain way for a certain purpose. He's made other bodies which are quite different from the earth. Some are made of gas, some are made of rock, some are, some are huge, some are very small. Each one is different. There's a certain similarity in some ways, but they are different from each other. Why should it be strange then that there are, there are different kinds of bodies? There's, there's an earthly body. There's a body which is fit, fitted and suited for this world that we live in. But there's also a heavenly body. I think that's the, the illustration he's trying to make here, using these different arguments. I had, to, I had to think about this. What does this actually mean? Any, anybody else want to make any comments about that section? Verse 42. So Paul then goes on to, to apply this principle of different bodies to the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about Christian people here. Not the general resurrection, but specifically Christian resurrection. The body that is sown is perishable. Let's, let's think about this for a moment. The body that is sown. What is the body that is sown? What do you think? What does that represent? What does it mean? Yeah. It's talking about the natural human body, which we all have. Okay. So one day, as I said earlier, all of us 
we don't like to think about it, but all of us will be buried or cremated perhaps. We'll, our bodies will be put into the ground in some way, uh, like a seed being sown and put into the earth, lowered down. And like the seed, it's, the seed was almost forgotten, isn't it? You, you bury it away and you leave it to its own devices. So that's the, this is the body, the natural body, the, the Adamic body, the body that we all have, the flesh which is suited for living in this world, suited for this life. And it goes into the ground. What, what does it say here about it? It's perishable. What does that mean? Well, of course, it means it, it decomposes. The body cannot survive. You cannot keep it. What's, what's it called, Steve, when they, they, they freeze bodies? What's it called, chirogenics? Chirogenics, yeah. You, you get these people, don't you, these, these rich Americans and stuff, they freeze bodies, and Germans, they freeze bodies in these great big freezers that, in case that one day somebody invents some kind of device for bringing the dead back to life. What a waste of money. What a waste. So you, you, can, you can preserve a human body, but in any case, the body's dead. There's no life in it. You can't revive it. It's not going to come alive again. What else can we say about the natural body, the, the human body, the perishable body? What else does he say? The body that is sown is perishable. What else? It is, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. What does that mean, do you think? Hmm. The body we have in this life is definitely definitely subject to the ravages of sin, isn't it? So we all know, don't we? We're human beings. We're not going to be sinless in this life. We have, we're born again by the Spirit of God, but we're still... We're still subject to the weaknesses that human beings who are born in this sinful world face, the same sort of struggles. We're not going to be completely free of sin in this life, are we? And the struggle against sin. It's sown in dishonor. I wonder if that's also talking about physical dishonor. So for the Jewish people, a corpse was a a most hideous thing, wasn't it? You were to touch a corpse, you were defiled, ritually defiled. And in many cultures today, that's still the case. Touching a dead body, coming near a dead body. Yes, Annie. Without honour, so similar to dishonour. We get spots. (laughs) We obviously kind of, you know, get tired after a while. You know what you were saying in the morning. You get wrinkles. You kind of fight. (laughs) What's the what's the consequence of sin? What happens to yeah death? And death is a process, isn't it? As well as an event. So when you when you sin, we're all born in sin. So that process begins from the moment of birth. In, In a sense, your body starts to decay. It starts to move towards that, that inevitable moment of death when your body will just give up and not be able to function. And that's ultimately caused by sin, Adam's sin, which is passed on to us and the consequences of that sin. I think, I think it's talking about dishonor. It's the body going into the grave is not, not a pretty picture, is it? I mean, I don't want to talk... This is a very sensitive subject, but when, when somebody is just, just old and their body is just given up and... I wasn't talking about you. A body. You know, I, I remember my great aunt. Um, my great aunt died of cancer. 
I remember I went to see her. I travelled hundreds of miles to see her, and I hadn't seen her for a long time. I was really shocked to see her lying in her bed. She'd been a strong, healthy woman, an active woman, and her body was just ravaged by that horrible disease. Um, you know, it's one before you came on the scene. You know, what happens to that woman? How, how sad that, that death had ravaged her in that way. Her, you know, it was just, her body was dishonourable. It was, I don't want to describe it. You can imagine what it was like. She went into the tomb and it wasn't a beautiful picture. And she wasn't a Christian woman, as far as I know. But that body, the body now will give up. One day we will, we will not be hale and hearty. We will go into the tomb, into the grave. And we'll be, the earth will go on top of us. And what else does it say? It is sown in weakness. Similar picture. Some of, some of us know very well what it's like. The body is getting weaker and weaker. We're not able to do what we used to do. When you, when you die, you're completely weak. You're helpless. You're just a lifeless corpse. Going to the ground. I think that's true, but he's, he's talking here specifically about the body that is sown. So the idea here is, is the, the body is actually, this is the body that dies. So the body is subject to weakness during our lifetime, subject to the power of sin. But when it goes into the ground, when it's buried, it's the picture of the seed being planted in the ground. Sown a natural body, he says. So that's the end of the natural body. When we die, that's the end of this body, in a sense. goes into the ground. But what does he say here? That he contrasts the body that is sown, the natural body, with a body that is raised, a spiritual body. Let's talk about the spiritual body. That's, that's, more, that's more encouraging, isn't it, than talking about the, the body that has passed away, that is decays in the ground so the body that is sown is perishable but the body that is raised it is raised how is it raised imperishable so what does that mean everlasting life yeah yeah what god promises is that there will be a body a new body that will rise again on that last day it won't be a completely new body it won't be some people might think, well, that body is gone and we have a completely new body. It will somehow be connected to the body that we have now. Intimately connected. Like the acorn. The oak tree that springs from the acorn is connected to the acorn. You can't really separate the two, and yet it's different. And the body that is raised will be very different, and yet will still be, in a sense, the same body. I can't really get my head around that fully, but that's, that seems to be the idea here that, that Paul was talking about. And of course, we think about the Lord Jesus, don't we? When he was raised from the dead, it was clearly the same Jesus. We don't believe that you know, he was some kind of ghost or some kind of zombie. or He wasn't a different person. It was the same Jesus. He had flesh and blood. You could touch him. He could eat food. He ate a piece of fish. You could touch him. He had physical bones and flesh. 
He said, touch me and see, a ghost does not have bones and flesh as you see I have. And yet he had a resurrection body. He had a body that couldn't die again. He had a body which was immortal and eternal. Well, Christ was immortal anyway, but his body was different. It wasn't subject to aging. It wasn't subject to sin and the decay that we all face. What else does he say about this body? It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. When Christ was raised from the dead, his body was glorious. I don't think we fully understand what that looked like. We know, don't we, that sometimes his disciples failed to recognize him. Maybe that's because their eyes were, were, he was hidden from their eyes temporarily. But when he walked on, on the earth after his resurrection, often people failed to recognize him. There was something different about him. But he was raised up in glory. And that body that Christian people will be raised, will be raised with will be a glorious body, according to this. Whatever that looks like. Powerful body, a strong body, a healthy body, a body that's not subject to illness or sin. A body that's fit to live in heaven. A body that will last forever. A real body. Not just a kind of spiritual body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise our bodies too. body that's, as I understand it, not subject to, to fatigue and weakness and stress and all the things that hinder us in this life and make life difficult verse 44 it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body we must not think that the spiritual bodies are some kind of disembodied spirit the spiritual body is a real body a physical body organized in a similar way to our bodies now but imperishable glorious powerful fit to live in the kingdom to come And a body which is fully controlled by the Holy Spirit. A body which is completely spiritual in the sense that it's, it's powered by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit to a complete degree. Philippians 3, uh, Paul talks about this. He says, Jesus, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's a promise for Christian people, that your body and my body, as weak, as weak as they may be now, one day will be raised by the power of Christ. So we have bodies like his glorious body. As I wrote here, the resurrection is a transformation of the same bodies we had on earth. The old body will become a new body, just as the plant springs from the seed. But it will still be your body. There will be continuity. It won't be a complete change. You know, Christopher will still be Christopher, I believe. Anya will still be Anya. We'll be changed, but we'll be the same. Why should that be so strange? God does this all the time in nature on a smaller scale God did this on a massive scale with Jesus
let's look at this bit in verse 45 so it is written the first man Adam became a living being the last Adam a life giving spirit the spiritual did not come first but the natural and after that the spiritual this is quite ambiguous many Bible scholars debate the exact meaning of these words so perhaps we can unpack this together tonight verse 45 the first man Adam the first Adam became a living being the last Adam a life-giving spirit can anybody tell us what they what they how they understand this verse what does it mean the first let's start with the first Adam the first Adam first man Adam became a living being why is that important in this argument Anya can I have the microphone, please, Chris? Thanks. That's it, on. Okay, so, sorry. So, if you look further on, sorry for jumping ahead, but it says the first man came from dust of the earth, the second man came from heaven. So, basically, first Adam, it's Adam in the Garden of Eden, created, fallen, and uh, we part of that fallen creation. And second Adam is Christ who came from heaven. Mm-hmm. And because he was risen, we will be risen one day and we have new bodies as he had. Why do you think um, Christ is described as a life-giving spirit? Or could we, I like him, but go on, Julia. So how is that contrasted with the first Adam? What did he give us? Okay. Steve? I do think you have to take, take some notice of the language there. In, in, I mean, in, in Hebrew and in Greek, I think, the, the word for spirit and breath is the same. Pneuma, isn't it? Pneuma. Well, pneuma in Greek, yeah. And what Genesis says, of course, is that God breathed a spirit in, that's into Adam. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that means a breath, I mean, the other animals had breath. Um, so exactly what that means is, is perhaps debatable in itself. But, but I presume what he's saying is that the spirit that was breathed into Adam was not an imperishable spirit, whereas the spirit that Jesus come the the, the, the the body that Jesus has the spirit that Jesus gives us is is in its nature imperishable I mean in a sense a spiritual body is a contradiction in terms isn't it but Paul obviously means something by it I think it means a, a body animated by an imperishable spirit or something like that Yes, it's definitely a body, a real body, yeah. but as you say... Jerome, did you say? Did I see your hand? No? I think I might have jumped ahead a little bit, but I was thinking about how Adam, in a sense, is a representative head mm-hmm. of the human race, and that we are, you know, before we were born again, before we were saved, we were all in Adam. So Adam... Is a, is a public person, he's a representative person. Whereas now we're in, in Christ, Christ is now our representative head. Yeah, which is and there's something about that 
that's coming out in this text, I think. So in, in a sense, there's two types of humanity, aren't there? There's a type of humanity which is in Adam, which is everybody, except for Christians. And then there's, there's Christians who are in Christ, the second, the last Adam, who comes as a representative of a new kind of humanity, people who are animated by that spirit. Is that what you're saying there? So I, I ponder this, and I, I can't pretend that I've nailed this, unfortunately. So what good am I? But the first Adam became a living being. God is the one who imparted life to him. Adam had no ability to impart life. However that looked, God breathed his spirit or breathed life into him. But Adam, as we know, he sinned and he passed his sin, the sinful nature and the curse of death, onto all his descendants. But Christ was very different from Adam, although he's called the last Adam, the second Adam. Christ is a life-giving spirit. Nobody breathed life into Christ. The Lord Jesus had the ability, has the ability to vivify, to, to impart life to people, to us, to those who believe. So I'm sure we could say a lot more about this. But I think the point is here that those who are in Christ, as Jerome said, those who believe in him, trust in him, they receive not straight away a new body we still have these bodies we're not given straight away the moment you become a christian you get a new spiritual body but there is that promise of that resurrection that we we are under the headship of christ and therefore we're not no longer under the headship of adam part of the family of adam as it were got a lot of that spirit now we've got a huge amount. yeah but we have we still have the same bodies don't we but we have the the spirit of god dwelling in these these um, these clay pots you know jars of clay this tent that paul talks about which one day we need to will be taken off Forty-seven. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. So it's talking about the origins of Christ, Lord Jesus, and Adam. So Adam was created, as we know, from the dust of the earth. Let me just say, if you don't really believe in the literal Adam and Eve, you've got a real problem with these verses. I don't know how you can reconcile that, really, if you don't believe that actually there were an Adam and Eve. Obviously, Paul had something very wrong, if that's the case. But Adam came from the dust, and God, God breathed his life into Adam. But the second Adam came down from heaven, a spiritual man. Look at verse 48. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And if we're Christian, we're Christians. We are those who are of heaven. Our home, our destiny is to be with the Lord Jesus in his kingdom. Verse 49, just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. This is talking about our future destiny as Christians. At the moment, we still bear the likeness 
of the man from Earth, we still have these, these bodies which are subject to decay, natural bodies, which will be sown like a seed in the ground. And yet, and yet, we shall one day bear the likeness of the man from heaven. On that day, when the last trumpet sounds, we will be raised up and we will have his, a body like his glorious body, the first fruits, as we, we heard this morning. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's a portal that we cannot go through with these bodies, these current bodies. We cannot enter the kingdom. We cannot enter heaven with these bodies. The perishable cannot inhabit the the realm of the imperishable. And Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery, something which has been revealed to us by God. We will not sleep. We will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, an eye at the last trumpet. So Paul says not everybody will be, when he says we will not all sleep, he's, he's talking about physical death. We will not all be dead. There will be Christians alive walking the earth when the Lord Jesus comes on that day. Going about their business. Doing what people do. And then... Suddenly, the Lord Jesus Christ will come, the trumpet will sound, and in in an instant, we will be changed. The dead will be raised, so the dead, those who sleep in the dust of the earth, will be raised imperishable with their new bodies, resurrection bodies, and we will be changed. Those who are still alive will instantly be changed and given their resurrection bodies. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I wanted to talk briefly tonight about the resurrection, the general resurrection of the dead. Because the Bible makes it clear there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Daniel 12 talks about that. Millions who sleep in the dust of the earth will be raised to, to life, some to everlasting contempt and others to, life, to, to righteousness. So I can't remember the exact quote. And I think the Bible does teach very clearly there will be a resurrection of, the, of the, the unrighteous and they will be in bodily form in hell, in judgment. I've been pondering this this week. I don't exactly know how this works. I can't imagine that the dead, the unrighteous, will receive a resurrection body like Christ's body, but that there will be some kind of body and some kind of conscious state in hell. And we could perhaps talk about that another time. I, I can't really unpack that tonight. We haven't got time to do so. Well, I don't think we, can, we, can, we can't really make a case from the Bible that somehow when people die who are not in Christ, somehow they'll just be annihilated and disappear. They won't have a, have a glorious, imperishable resurrection body, a spiritual body, but there will be some kind of body to stand before the Lord at judgment and then, very sadly, to be cast into hell. And isn't that an awful thing as well, to ponder? You'd do anything to avoid that, wouldn't you? You can believe in the Lord Jesus. And of course, we've got this bit at the end, which is too detailed to unpack tonight. But the gist of it is, is that death has been swallowed up in victory. Death is not the end for the Christian. Death is not some great tragedy. It's sad. We miss people who die. When my parents die, I'll be very sad. I'll cry. But my parents are Christians. 
And I know that when their bodies go into the ground, it won't be the last I've seen of them. They won't be gone forever. There will be a resurrection. I'll be reunited all together. The church of all these years, the Old Testament church, the New Testament church, the future church, all of us will be raised together on that day at the same time to meet the Lord, given our new bodies. How great the rejoicing will be. These verses enable us to look death in the face and say, you know, that my body may decay and get old and rot and aches and pains and illnesses. But that's okay because this is not my final body. I've got something far better waiting for me. You know, doesn't that change the way we look at death? That actually this, this life, death is something to be welcomed in a sense because really it is the pathway to, it's the essential step in order for us to receive the resurrection body, the spiritual body, the body which is like Christ's body. Death has lost its sting. You know, sting, Paul talks about, is not just like a bee sting. A bee sting can be annoying. I remember I was stung by a bee in several places once. It was painful. But the sting is like a scorpion sting that Paul's talking about, I believe. A deadly sting. When the scorpion has lost its sting, scorpion's harmless. Can't do you any harm. Can go in your bed. Won't harm you at all. Death is like that. Jesus Christ has disabled death. It's cut off the sting. So we can look forward to death with confidence saying, I know I'm going to be raised again. Let me say this, another implication of this, a Christian can never throw away their life in martyrdom. Think about those Christians once again. I talk about this a lot because it's a very, very real thing. Christians are giving up their lives as we speak properly. Someone may say, what a waste of life. Why are you giving up your life? As a Christian, you can never, ever throw away your life in martyrdom. If you give up your life for the Lord Jesus, how rich will will your reward be on that day? You'll be given a new body, imperishable, powerful, glorious. There's a verse here at the end I want to draw attention to as well. Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's encouraging, isn't it, as Christians? This is, this is the, the, the implication of this, that because this life is not the end, because there is a life to come and a kingdom to come, our labor in the Lord, our work for him, our service as Christians is not in vain. I said this morning, if Christ were not raised from the dead, our church would be a waste of time. Teaching Sunday school would be a waste of time. Sharing the gospel with a colleague would be a waste of time. Because Christ is raised, because we will be raised, it's not a waste of time. It's very precious, very important. It has eternal consequences. I mentioned this morning again about people I know that are getting old and I face the prospect of losing some very dear people. But these people, many of them are Christians, not all of them. I look at them, I think, you know, I can face that because I believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I believe that they'll get new bodies. Anya's mum will get a new body. Very frail. She won't be one day. 
death is swallowed up in victory. Emphatic. Certain. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Isn't it interesting in Romans, Paul talks about that. That's one of the the prerequisites for being a Christian. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A Christian is somebody who believes in their heart. Not just paying lip service, but I believe that, that God has raised him from the dead. People need to know this. People who don't know the Lord need to hear this. Nothing else will save them. And actually, if you think about it, this is the best news that people can hear. If only they would have ears to listen. What a wonderful, blessed thing. And may people see us as Christians, as people who die well. May they look at us and see the hope that we have, that we don't die like the rest of people. We die well with that quality, that beautiful quality of Christian dignity and hope. Not vague, pie in the sky, I hope things will be okay, but I hope I'm trusting in the promises, the resurrection of my Lord Jesus, that he will raise me on that day. And then when I stand before him, he'll he'll welcome me into the kingdom. Finally, the, the implication of this, I'm sorry I've just skipped over so much tonight, but the implication is that we should give glory to Jesus, who's made this all possible. He's to be praised. If it were not for him, we would be totally lost. He would have no hope. This is the man who conquered death, the man who's coming again for his people. We will have those imperishable, glorious bodies. I hope you can take that into the week with you as an encouragement. And we can talk more about this in days ahead. This is a good thing to... Paul says in, in Thessalonians, encourage each other with these words. We ought to do that. I hope I've encouraged you tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful promises contained in this passage thank you Lord that although our bodies here are subject to sin frail, weak facing death we thank you that we have the sure and certain promise of the resurrection new bodies and yet in a sense the same body stemming from those bodies Lord there are many things we don't understand this is a mystery these are deep things but we thank you Lord for what we do understand Lord that we have great hope Please help us to be worshippers of you, Lord, and to to appreciate what you've done. And we pray that many more people would come to understand their great need of you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Christopher. We'll sing one more hymn. Before the throne of God above. And this talks about that the risen Lord Jesus and his ministry on behalf of his people, interceding for them as our great high priest. So please stand and sing.